Okay. Um, so I, I had a presentation that I had to give yesterday in class, and I've been doing this research about this. Um, and a couple of days ago, Donnie, a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, Donnie says, by the way, Donnie's going to go off and play. He's headed off to uh, his, yeah, he's trying to sneak out. He's headed off to his nephew's bachelor zipline party thing. And so he brings this, yeah, go have, go have fun, man. Go have fun. And so he brings this up a couple of weeks ago. Hey, can anybody teach so I could go and do this? I'm like, well, gosh, I'm doing, I'm doing a pile of research. I'm reading like three books. I've got this, this report that I've got to put together and do this presentation in class. And he says, well, why don't you just give the presentation on Sunday? Um, I don't know if that's going to work so well. It's, it's fairly academic. It's not very sermon-ish, right? So... Uh, as I'm trying to transfer this academic presentation into a sermon, I kind of I said to my family at dinner, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a weird one. And Marley actually responds, Dad, your sermons are always weird. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. But I think this is going to be especially weird. So I, I'm going to apologize up front. This is going to be very academic, but... Um, uh, and it might challenge some people. So what I've been doing is I've been doing research on Jacob wrestling with God. I, I, I actually did some research on this in my undergrad uh, before I was a Christian, before I was baptized, because that was a requirement at Gonzaga that you had to do some biblical studies. And so I was intrigued, and how would I view this now that I'm a strong Christian? And so I dove into it at the master's level and, and did textual comparison with ancient literature that goes all the way back to, well, uh, um, the Epic of Gilgamesh goes back 2,100 years before Christ. We date this, uh, this the story of Jacob wrestling with God at about 1,800 years before Christ. We, we grab that dating because there's a lot of patterns that we see um, that are in that story that we find in writings uh, from the Nuzi tablets. And the Nuzi tablets were dated about 800 years before Christ. And so we see these patterns that are matched. And as a matter of fact, in the Newsy tablets, they mention the Habiru, which is understood to be the Hebrew. So there's a relationship between these two people. As a matter of fact, they have identified the Nuzazis as the Horites in the Old Testament. So there is a relationship between these two sets of people. We find these patterns in their writings, so that's why we kind of date this right around 800 years before Christ. But there's hints and interests that we're seeing percolate up that even predate this that are stories that connect into Jacob wrestling with God and the whole family structure, the whole family line. So what I had, what I had been doing is doing what's called historical and textual comparisons. I'm looking at old ancient um, writings from the period of time and then looking at writings in the Bible and seeing how they compare. What is similar? What is the same? What is different? And it's very interesting. I'm not going to present all that stuff because, uh, well, honestly, it gets pretty challenging. There, there's some really challenging concepts that we have to, we have to accept. But what I am going to do is I'm going to grab some pieces of that. One piece of that is just literary context looking at literary criticism and, and, and how it is written and in a poetic form and the structure of the literature. And then I'm going to uh, uh, dive into something which I just learned in this class, which is called canonical reading or canonical criticism, which is asking, instead of going and diving into what is what really, really happened in a historical sense, I want to know exactly what happened. Did Jacob really walk this, or did this really happen? Instead, we step back from that, because in a sense, we go, well, it's so old, and these writings are, are, are so obscure, we really have a hard time discerning that. But instead, we say, hey, I have received this document as a canon. Through a canonization process of a people group, that they grab their identity from this. And it is a deep, meaningful piece of literature. So instead of diving into the details and fighting over the history, it's saying, this is a canon and why? Why did it become canon? And how does it affect the identity of the people? 
and ask those kind of questions. So I'm going to really focus more on that. <clears throat> so this terminology that I picked up in here that I really like called the integrity of reality. And one could look at that, the integrity of reality, and say, well, that means what is real. Yes, but what is real isn't always exactly what you heard or what you experienced. We'll go into the details of that, but a great example is maybe you get into a uh, bickering match with somebody. Uh, I don't know, a spouse, uh, a child, I don't know. It might happen. And um, you get into this scenario where you're going, well, you said this, but well, you said this. Well, I, 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 didn't, I, I said it this way. You all know you said it this way. What's the reality? You know, you get so buried into the argument, there's a point that sometimes, <laughs> this, happened, this happens recently a lot in my household, not necessarily with my spouse, but some of the siblings and whatnot, but there's a point that I go, what did I say? Oh my goodness, I don't even know what I said. It's being reinterpreted, retranslated to me. I'm questioning myself. What's the reality here? Well, here's the reality. The reality is, how is it being received? What do I need to do to communicate what my reality of what I'm trying to communicate is? So this concept of the integrity of reality is, well, what's the truth in this? And I'm talking about spiritual truth. I'm talking about psychological truth, identity truth, relational truth. That's the reality I want to talk about. Not necessarily exactly what I said, because guess what? Yeah, I might have misspoke. <laughs> that happens. It happens up here, actually. And call me out. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, so then from that, what I want to bring out of that is the theological significance of this canonical reading. And then what's the practical pieces that we can draw out of that? So that's what I'm going to try to do in a sermon. And it's not really a sermon, right? This is more of a teaching. It's more of a personable teaching, maybe? I don't know. But let's, uh, let's watch this in prayer before I dive into this. So, Lord, as you know, you know where I'm, we're trading into here. When you, you, you know what's on my heart. You know what is trying to be communicated. And you know what people need to receive. And when I ask you, Jesus, you, that you come, that you are present here, Holy Spirit, wash this, wash this teaching, filter my, 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 my words, filter the ears, uh, Holy Spirit, move into my heart in presentation and everybody else's heart in reception that whatever this may turn into, you work with it. You do something with it. You, you affect people with it. You, you grow us in depth and relationship uh, with you and with each other and with your, your wonderful word, Lord. We just thank you that you are so accessible. Amen. So the story of Jacob really, I mean, it's, it, it's, it was really hard to say, okay, where do I need to start? Because the story is the Bible. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It's like, it's the Bible. Where do I want to start with that? I want to start with Abraham. I want to start with Abraham. Well, no, before I start with him, I'm going to start with when Jacob, and I'm going to kind of accept that, that, some, that most of you know the story. And I'm going to read big sections of it, but, oh, I forgot to start my time, my watch. So if I go over, that's why. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> Small mistake. <laughs> um, Jacob, so the story of Jacob, right, he, he, steals, um, he, 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 he steals the inheritance and the blessing from his brother Esau. Uh, so his father Isaac has blessed him has given him the inheritance, has given him the promise, and Esau's ticked off. He's ready to kill him. And uh, this thing's not working. And um, his, his mom basically says, well, you need, to, you, you need to bolt. You need to get out of here before your brother kills you. And convinces Isaac, his, his, uh, his father, to, um, to say, hey, I really want you not to marry into the tribes around this area. I want you to go back to our homeland and marry people from our family group. And so he has to bolt. He, 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 he takes off for his life, right? 
Um, I'll read a section a little bit later on where he says, and all I had when I crossed the Jordan was my staff. That's it. So he's bolting from his family, even though he supposedly has um, gained the inheritance and the promise. And when he's crossing the Jordan, he has a dream. And this dream is very significant. It's called, it's called uh, Jacob's Ladder. This is 14 years prior to the, the wrestling match. So I'm going to read from Genesis 28, uh, verse 10 through 22. It's going to be on the back screen if you'd like to follow along. Uh, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep in a dream. And he had a dream. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac, who's actually his father, and the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad, the, uh, abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And then Jacob woke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took a stone that he put under his head and he set it up on a pillar and he poured oil over the top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city before was Luz. Um, uh, then Jacob vowed, saying, if God will be with me and will keep in this way that I go and will, uh, and will give me bread to eat, clothing to wear, so that I, that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of that you give me, I will give a tenth of you, uh, to, to you, he says to God. So um, I, I still have a map. So what's going to happen is he, he's headed off. I've I got a map up here to kind of show. I like to, Donnie was showing this before. I like to show what's going on. Um, on a map, so, so he, he's crossing. This is his return back. So he crosses uh, Jordan, we think, somewhere up in here. Uh, Bethel is somewhere in this area. Uh, and he crosses and goes up, way up north into the, into the Fertile Crescent, where he meets Laban, his mom's brother. Marries Laban's daughters, ends up with a big family, finally leaves Laban, and heads back <clears throat> through this route to cross the Jabbok River. Now, this is showing that he does not cross the Jabbok River. We're unsure if he actually crosses the Jabbok River or not. And you'll get, there's a lot of this text that's not, not entirely clear. And this is the route that Esau, Esau hears of his coming, and he's coming up to meet with Jacob. <clears throat> when Jacob comes down to this location right around Succoth, we, we get in Genesis 32, he's met by the angels of the Lord. This really strange sequence that happens. He's met by the angels of the Lord, and it's like, oh, okay. And there's always like almost no significance to it. So now I'm going to read through Genesis 32, 1 through 12, <clears throat> to give you a feeling of what's going on when he comes back into the land. Um, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of the, Lord, of the God, or angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name Mahanaim. I blew that. I always do that, right? Mahanaim. Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord, 
in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he, he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Uh, he divided his people who were, uh, who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the other camp will be left with, uh, that is left will escape. So what he ends up doing in the next jump is he ends up sending a, his two groups in two different uh, sets across the Jabbok River, kind of protecting all of his stuff, right? So if Esau attacks and destroys half of his family, he still has half of his family. If Esau decides to come directly to Jacob and kill Jacob, at least his family lives and escapes. So he's kind of strategizing here. He's totally scared. Esau has been... Right? He ran from Esau because Esau was going to kill him. And then, the, 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 we're going to get into this a little bit later, but there's a kind of a confusion in the original language when you see the angels of, of God are, the, the word is messengers, the actual word. And then you see the messengers repeated multiple times in this section. And it's the same word. So in a sense, it's uh, the messenger, Jacob's moving along and boom, there's messengers of God. Okay, and then Jacob sends messengers. And to the reader, that's almost, are these the messengers of God? Did he meet the messengers of God and say, hey, go and talk to Esau? Or did he send a different set of messengers that were from his own family? And so there's this, who are these messengers? Where do they come from? How do they know where they are? Are they angels? It's interpreted angels here, but it's messengers. How often are messengers actually people? How often are prophets people in our church that speak truth to us? So there's a little bit of ambiguity there in the language. And now Jacob, fearful of Esau coming and attacking, he says this prayer to the Lord, kind of pointing all the way back to 14 years later. He's pointing back 14 years saying, do you remember this? And I want to say to Jacob, do you? <laughs> After how you've been acting, do you remember this? <clears throat> but Jacob says, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that you may do good. Oh, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff have I crossed this Jordan, and now I have come become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. And he may come and attack me, the, the mothers of the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as sands of the sea which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So we, we see this often in the Bible, right? Remember, remember, remember. God says this all through Deuteronomy. He says this, remember in Exodus. Remember this event. Make these Make these, these parties, these festivals to remember this event. And here's Jacob saying, God, remember. Remember the promise that you made me. Remember the promise you made to Abraham. Remember when I crossed the Jordan. Because he's feeling like God isn't remembering. Something that we can very well relate with. Sometimes we're, do you remember God? Do you remember our first relationship, our first contact, our first, do you remember God? This is what Jacob's praying I am fearful. I'm going to die. My family's going to get slaughtered. Don't you remember the promise that you made me, Lord? Then in that prayer, what I love is that, remember the inheritance and the birthright you stole, Jacob? Which is intriguing. He stole the birthright. But it wasn't really his birthright to steal. God has to give him that birthright. That promise comes from God, not Isaac. Isaac has nothing to do with that promise. His inheritance was what? A staff. What did he steal? What did he take by his own means, by his own efforts? What, what did he gain? And now he finds himself ready to be slaughtered by Esau, and he reaches back out to God and says, I had nothing. I got nothing. I came with nothing. Here I am with nothing. But you promised me something. What gives, Lord? <clears throat> what gives? Then we get this wrestling scene. 
So he's alone. He's left alone. His family is scattered. His family's gone across the Jabbok. He's still on this side of the Jabbok. And all of a sudden, this happens. Genesis 32. I'll start in verse 22. The same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. So correct, he did cross. My correction. See, I blow it all the time. And I just read this like 700 times. I'm not kidding you. And then Jacob was left alone. And here we go. And then Jacob's left alone. So his family's gone. Jacob's left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of day. What a strange happening there. And the, and the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, and he touched the hip, his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, what is it that you, or why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of this place Peniel. For, he said, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping, because of his hip. Therefore, this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket, but he t- that because he touched the hip socket, or he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh. So then they run into each other, and this is this very strange scene. So we have the strange wrestling scene, and then Esau and Jacob meet, and 33 verse 4 But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell upon his neck and kissed him and wept. Okay, we're prepared for a battle. There's 400 men, presumably of war, because if it was a party, it would be not just men, it would be families, it would be be cattle, livestock. 400 men of war. But all of a sudden, Esau falls on his neck and weeping and kisses him. And then verse 10, Jacob says, No, please, have, uh, I've found favor in your sight. Then, If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. N- note, there's a very significant situation here that Jacob gets renamed. He gets renamed to Israel. This is a foundational piece of Israel, but it's not like it's disa- that it changes forever because God has to come back and remind Israel, remind Jacob, chapter 35 and other places, by the way, your name's Israel, <laughs> you're not Jacob. He has to remind him of this. Okay, so we went through this sequence of, and I hope I highlighted some of the strange things that are happening here. Some of the really strange language that's happening. Here's a bit of the literary or the textual components of this. Uh, There's several places through the Bible we see uh, interruptions in a storyline. And this is one of those. It's called, there's a documentary hypothesis, is that there's the storyline, and then an editor comes in and injects a piece of information, or expands on the story. And we can tell something's happened there because the the wording changes, the language changes, the author has a different feel to it. Now, of course, it's a hypothesis, right? No, the author could have been the same author and said, I'm going to change my style here. But we see this in like Abraham meeting Melchizedek. Abraham is just in war. He returns uh, to to, 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 uh, the area of Sodom and okay, all of a sudden he meets Melchizedek. And there's this really weird scene with Melchizedek here, which doesn't fit the storyline. We see it in Tamar and Judah. We're in the middle of the story of Joseph, and then all of a sudden it's interrupted, and there's the story of Tamar and Judah, where Tamar, um, if you guys don't remember the story, it's um, uh, Tamar is supposed to be married off to one of 
Judah's sons and he refuses to do it. And so Tamar ends up getting herself impregnated by him so she can continue the family line. And it is like this revelation to Judah how evil he's been and how Tamar is righteous trying to continue the family line. And then it goes back to the story of Joseph. We also see it in situations, this very, very strange one, which is called the bridegroom of blood. When God calls Moses back to Israel, back to Egypt, sorry, he's coming back to Egypt to talk to Pharaoh, and all of a sudden there's this weird interlude where an angel tells his wife that God's going to kill her sons if she doesn't uh, um, uh, circumcise them. And then you just go back with the story. These really weird interludes that are very important in the storyline, but are intersected for a strange reason. And in that language, it is blended into the story. And there's really wild, amazing, beautiful, refined sections that are deeply, deeply purposeful. The wordplay in this in Hebrew is really fun and interesting. The wordplay is um, Jacob, Jabbok, and wrestling all rhyme. They're all kind of a similar word set. So in reading this, if you, if you notice, there was a lot, he said this, and then he said this, and then he, these pronouns get you in this rhythm of who, who said what now? And then it goes Jabek, crossing Jabek was Jacob, and they're wrestling, and it's Yakoba and Yabak, and Abuch, and all these words are, you can see how you're in this rhythm of this reading, and as a reader, you're almost kind of scrambled. Okay, what's going on now, and who's crossing what? And who is this man out of the blue? Unclear who the messengers just show up, and then the messengers that are sent. Were they the same messengers, different messengers? It's unclear the wounding of his hip just by a touch. And then the word touch in Hebrew, it's, it's, I, I think it's a perfect translation. It's a perfect translation because it could mean an affectionate touch, and it could mean a harsh touch. It could mean a metaphorical touch. That word fits perfectly to what happens because he touched his hip and then boom, he's limping. And that's one of the first glimpses we go, okay, this isn't just a man. But you don't know it's God, but he's face to face with God. You can't be face to face with God. You'll die. Is this a Christophany? Meaning, is this Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? There's all these questions wrapped around this that are just weird and interesting. The reader expects this to be Esau, don't you? Esau's coming to attack, and then a man shows up, and you're wrestling. It should be Esau, shouldn't it? That's what the reader's expected to think, but yet it's divine. Okay, there's this really intriguing reversal in the literary, how it plays. They'll set up these parallels and then switch the parallels to be opposite. Jacob's face to face with God, and then he meets Esau and says, Esau, it's like being face to face with God when I see you. So he's taken this parallel of being with God. We think it should be Esau that he's wrestling with, and no, it's actually deities wrestling with him, and then he flips it and says, Esau, I see your face like you're the face of God. He's setting up a parallel, but then flipping the parallel in literature. I mean, brilliant, brilliant writing. This isn't haphazard. This, this isn't, you'll hear some people say, oh, the Bible was put together and orally, and then it's like the telephone game. No. No, no this is a brilliant piece of literature very purposeful, very thought through, very beautiful. And the point that we're going to end up on is kind of the critical piece of the identity of Jacob gets changed in this whole circumstance. And in that changing of identity, what happens in the story is he ties the individual of Jacob with the entire nation of Israel Jacob's children become the promise of the Israelites and take the name Israel. That is the Israel nation, but it all points back to an individual, or was it Abraham, or was it Adam? You you see how there's this individual that turns into a nation, but it's always pointing back to 
the individual. So there's this connection of an individual, but yet a community explaining this promise and tying it to a people, giving a deep, deep identity to it. It actually becomes, I should say, it is the theme that ties the entire Bible together. Really. This believer becomes a nation. And always that's symbolic back to the believer, which is a segue back to uh, the critical reading. How do I read this as a canonical section? Some would call it redactionary criticism, saying, okay, what do I, what, what do I reduce this to? Remember the concept of the integrity of reality. What do I draw out of this? Regardless of the historical accuracy, and, and you, want, you may still take it literal, and that's fine. That's wonderful, actually. The, the more and the more I've studied the Bible, the more and the more I realize, well, if I'm struggling with this and I actually take it literal, it actually very much helps me understand it and how it applies to me. If, you still, if what I've presented has, has made you think, well, there's a lot of symbolism in here, and how should I... Re Interesting, that's, let, that, let the Lord grow that. If you're back at, hey, this is literal, Kylan, fine, that's, it's literal. Regardless if you see this as literal, the author writing this, or authors, is doing something very particular, very important, to send a very important message to Israel through time, through Jesus, to us, and we should pay attention to this. The story has become a canon for reasons. This is a critical story in the history of these people, and it is cherished, and it is holy. So I do not want to downplay the importance of the Bible. I do not want to downplay that this is a canon that is holy. Okay? I want to draw two things out of this. One, the identity. It's just, not just the identity of Jacob, the identity of Israel, but it becomes the identity of us. And then two, the reality of what's happening here. What is really happening in this story? So first, identity. The renaming of Jacob. When he's asked, what is your name? His name, Jacob, meant heel grabber, supplanter, schemer, and you see that all through his history, right? He's weaseling his brother to, to take the inheritance in, 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 the, in, in the promise. But he doesn't really, does he? He leaves with a staff and the promise is given to him by the Lord, not by his father. He's a schemer. He schemes with Laban and Laban schemes back with him. This is his personality. And it doesn't disappear when he's renamed, by the way. When he meets Laban or Esau again, he schemes with Laban to not have to go and hang out with him. Even, or Esau says, hey, okay, let's all go down to this city and hang out. And, and, and Jacob says, okay, cool, I'll, I'll, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll be there. And then he bolts and he goes in a different direction. And then he... His name is changed, and God says, okay, you're no longer Jacob, you're Israel. And Israel means struggles with or contends with God. And, and, and what happens there is this rite of passage. I mean, think, think about when you do something difficult, when you, when you, when you get through a, a, an adversarial situation, it's wounding, it's crippling, but you grow from it. And this is what's happened with Jacob in this. There's this rite of passage that he comes through. Overcoming this adversity that will forever affect him. He will limp forever. He will never forget this. It will always be on his mind, and his name is changed. His identity is changed because of this interaction with the Lord. It's the beginning of the story of the nation of Israel. Starts there, because his sons all take the name. It becomes the nation of Israel. Israel. But it's all strangely shrouded in mystery. One of the authors that I was reading, who was a Greek or who was a Hebrew expert, uh, says this. He says, the name Israel, Yashrael, which is Yashra, which is a word we're not quite 100 percent sure of what it means. We think struggles, contends with. El is God. Yashrael as a word is a mystery. 
It is a mystery to the translator. It is a mystery that is a paradox. It's a paradox that only fits form of expression in describing its origin. In other words, the only way we really get what this word really means is the origins, which is this story, which is really intriguing. This idea of contends with and wrestles with God, the origins of the whole meaning of it is rooted in this story, but it's an ancient, ancient Hebrew words that we're not quite sure what they mean and what they say. <clears throat> this links into a concept called typology. So typology is we see certain types show up in scripture over and over and over again. And often they ratchet up and ratchet up and ratchet up and become this huge, big, important symbol. We're seeing the typology of the believer begin here. Um, it starts with Abraham and the promise to Abraham. Goes to Isaac and now in Jacob. And Jacob gets renamed to Israel, which becomes the nation. And eventually, when we read through the whole Bible, we start realizing Israel is becoming a term synonymous with the believer. And when we get to the New Testament, we're supposed to be reading this like, Israel is that typological believer, which is me. Which is me. Uh, I, I have this Michelangelo uh, um, drawing that's up in the Sistine Chapel. Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judas, or Judah. This is uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And what he's doing here in the Sistine Chapel is he's showing the patronage to the believer. This whole connection is a big typological idea that strings the entire Bible together. Israel's, Israel becomes personified. It starts with his individual and ends in an individual all through the Bible. Weeks ago, uh, we read in Acts 8, Stephen making a presentation to the Sanhedrin. And not... And, and what does he do in his presentation, in his sermon? What's he do? Keep that, keep that up for a while, actually. He says, remember where you came from. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, the prophets. He points, there he is in the New Testament, after resurrection of Jesus and saying, remember, remember where we all come from. Remember the connection all the way back to the promise of God. I want to say we do that. We do that too. We do that in our family. That is our identity. Our identity strings back to this history of the family, right? As a believer, this is our history into the family of belief, the family of Christ. There's our connection. There's our heritage. I tell my kids the story of you know, my grandpa. My grandpa came over from, um, uh, from Austria and ended up with the land grab in Chihuahua, and it was a crappy piece of land, and they were horribly poor, and, and all the stories about their farm, and, and, and you know, there was no power. There was, there were, there, all these stories about them growing up in poverty and my father growing up in poverty, but those stories aren't meaningless. It gives an identity to me and to my children of where you came from. Don't forget that. Don't forget that people went through struggles and poverty and blessings and challenges, and that's where you came from. This is the string to the whole Bible, and it gives us an identity. Look at the adversity that was overcome to get to where you're at now. And it comes through a strange story. Very strangely, this confusion of the dialogue, these series of weird pronouns, acrostics, rhythms in words, Jacob stealing his inheritance but getting nothing, contriving. Blessings that come from God. It's just a very strange storyline. 
hard to pinpoint. And that's the reality portion of it that I want to bring in here. Is that it's, and this isn't just a story to take as folklore and put it in our back pocket. There's a lot of reality in this. There's a lot of reality of the relationship that we have with God. Jacob is experiencing this reality of a relationship with God that isn't 100% clear. It's not easily cut and dried. There's paradox going on in this engagement with the divinity. Or was it divinity to start with? Or yes, it was divinity to start with because he didn't know at first, but he does in the end. And why does he pattern that onto Esau? There's this complexity. There's this purposeful ambiguity written into the story so that we as readers are confused with Jacob in how to have a relationship with God. Because it isn't cut and dried in a slam dunk. We sure want it to be. <clears throat> it's very purposefully blurred. This boundary of the divinity and the humanity. The man that he engages with is human, but yet he's divine. Sound familiar? Very much pointing to Jesus. This ambiguity between victory and defeat. Who won? The man wouldn't let go. Or the, the man says, we're done. We're done. Jacob wouldn't let go. So did Jacob win because he got blessed? But Jacob's wounded. Who won? Was there a victory? Was there a defeat? It's not really clear. And that's the aim of the story. There's two antagonists here, right? There's Esau, but there's also the man he wrestles with. Who's the antagonist that we're wrestling with? Is it an individual? Is it my neighbor? Is it my spouse? Is it my child? Is it me? Is it myself? Is it the Lord that I'm wrestling with? And the answer is yes in all of those. It, it, yes. That's why Jacob doesn't know who he's wrestling with. That's the integrity of reality of the story. We ask these questions, right? Well, my, one of my daughters asks us all the time, what's the Lord's will for me? What's the Lord saying to me? Was the Lord in that? This is what Jacob is wrestling with, and this is the reality of the story. This is what we should be gathering and taking from that. Here's a, here's a quote by D.H. Lawrence. <clears throat> D.H. Lawrence says, only that which is utterly intangible matters. Weird. The contact, the spark of exchange, that which can never be fashioned upon, it's forever gone, but forever coming. It's never detained. It's the spark of the contact. That's what really matters, he says. Very odd idea. In other words, all this tangible stuff that we experience and we go through, what really matters is the intangible that's happening all around us. <clears throat> I'll tell you what, the more I read the Bible, the more there is paradox. It sets up this ideal. Here's these ideals that we should live by. There's the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Here's this idea. And then here's all these stories where nobody follows them. Is this, did nobody, none of you go, what in the world? You know, here's these proverbs about, oh, this is how to be perfect and gain wisdom. And then there's these proverbs right next door, sometimes written in with it. And here's how these fools didn't do it. <clears throat> Read Israel, right? Over and over and over and over again, the prophet comes and says, stop, and then they don't, and then they do, and then they don't. And remember, Israel is us. It's the typological believer. Recognize how the promise, by the way, mixes into this. He makes a promise to Abraham, hey, I'm going to give you all this land and everything, and look what the promise becomes. Look at what the promise becomes. There's always a wrestling with God, can I say. At least in me, in my heart. And that's okay. That's what we're shown in Jacob. The Israelite people are the showcase of this. And that started with Jacob. Now, I want to do a little interlude, okay? If anybody's getting a little uncomfortable about how I'm talking about Scripture, which there might be, because this is not very normal, because this is coming out of the classroom. Remember, I said this was going to be a little weird, okay? 
I hope it's not too weird. Don't weird out. But look, there's a lot of people that I've ran into that have gone to seminary or have gone into deeper studies in the Bible, and they run into this problem, this tension of the Bible and folklore and how is it to be read and historical issues. And, and you know, there's a lot of wonderful archaeology that really point to this, this, is, this is real. There's reality here. There are... Israel wasn't made up. David existed. We have evidence, archaeological evidence. But it's by like stories like this. And they really have a difficult time with it. And some of them actually go, well, I, I, I have to reject it all. And they lose their faith. And it's heartbreaking to me to get into a challenge like this and lose your faith over it. <clears throat> and I, I, I want to say that it strengthened my faith. It has strengthened my faith. You know, many become very, very uncomfortable with this type of discussion. And, um, and many end up coming out in seminary and have to redefine what they call inerrancy. We see inerrancy often as, well, there's no errors, period, in the Bible. And if that's where they're coming from and they read these stories, you have to do one of two things. Either you have to reject the Bible or reject all the history that we're studying. And that can be really, really difficult and damaging. And, and I understand, that's uncomfortable. That's difficult and that's strange. But I really want to come back to the, can, the canonical portion of it. However you want to take that. If you want to take that as, ooh, how do I understand these things in historical sense? Or, no, that's it. I'm rejecting all that historical stuff that you're bringing up, Kylan. That's a bunch of malarkey. Fine, but what I do want to do is say, what's the story tell us? I mean, again, I look at it and say, what's the story tell me here? What is God communicating to me through this story? And it's deep. It's amazing. It is intense. It is brilliant. Brilliant. Do you understand? It is brilliantly written, and it is inspired no matter how you come up with this, no matter how you come up with this, it is inspired. There is nothing, nothing like it. And I really, really mean that. From a lot of study, there's nothing, nothing like it. There's no document. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit through humanity. I've, look, I've looked into all sorts of religions, all sorts of philosophy, read uh, too many books. There's nothing that talks about the struggles and the sorrows of humanity like the Bible does. There's nothing that talks about joy and glory like the Bible does. Depression and oppression, it doesn't ignore these things. Poetry and story and dialogue. Social and economic problems that aren't solved, that still aren't solved. Ethical rules and problems with ethical rules. <clears throat> it's a perfect, perfect, and I mean this, perfect representation of humanity right here. And it is a perfect representation of the condition of humanity. And a perfect representation of our relationship with God right here. And it's difficult, and it's, in, it's encrypted sometimes, and it's mystical sometimes, and it's supposed to be. I want to say it's supposed to be. God made it that way for a reason. Understand. Actually, let me, let me read this. This is a I think a powerful statement. Another guy I read, uh, Bereaved Childs is his name. I'm going to put the quote up here as well. And I have to, you've heard me maybe say this word, but I have to teach you a word. And I have no idea what time it is because my watch stopped doing that. So I'm sorry. Um, ontology. Have you heard me say that word? Anybody heard me say this word? Ontology? Okay. The, the, here's what the word means, and you have to know what this word means to read this quote, okay? Ontology means the nature of being, okay? Remember, I'm coming from why is the Bible so difficult sometimes, so encrypted sometimes, so mystical sometimes? Ontology is the nature of being. It's where you start asking questions like, what is existence? What is even 
existing mean? Weird, weird question, right? But when I map God onto that, and here's the quote. Here's the quote from Childs. <clears throat> the text of Scripture, when infused by the Spirit with the full ontological reality of God, you understand what he's saying there? When we fully ask the question of what is being, how does well, this full reality of who, what is the full ontological reality of God, it resonates with a fresh voice and evokes from its hearers the response of praise and wonder. This voice, which transcends historical origins, calls forth the hymns, liturgy, and art of the church in ever-changing forms of grateful response. This is her source of praise and thanksgiving. Its genre is confession. Its function is worship. If it was cut and dried and simple and clean, I don't think I would get that response. This is God who created the universe, people. It's supposed to be somewhat cryptic. What do I draw out of this? Okay, come in for a landing here. The theological, or you could say philosophical significance of this, I'm gonna try to make this a little quicker, okay? <clears throat> this represents this, the human condition, this ambiguous wrestling with God, with man. It's not clear, it's not black and white. It's really difficult for our Western minds to grab. We are taught an Aristotelian causality, which comes from Aristotle, and he says there's a cause to an effect, and that's how we think. We want it black and white. We want a cause to an effect. Here's the truth of the matter. There's multiple causes to a single effect. There's a cause in multiple effects. There's multiple causes in multiple effects. It isn't cut and dried. It is a near, near East canonical story because it's a story of humanity and the struggling of humanity with relationship with God and a struggling with our own identity in all of this. It represents the human condition perfectly. This relationship with God, it's a, it's a strange one, people. And understand the story we're reading is it precedes the law. There, it precedes the law. This is welcome to God. <clears throat> but God is to the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't forget that. God doesn't change. Our relationship with him changes and grows and flowers. Because remember, God's not a creature. God is the creator. There's no law that governs God. Understand that? Gravity doesn't affect God because God made gravity. The laws don't affect God because God made the laws. God doesn't love because of the concept of love. God is love. And that's where we get the concept of love. The, there's a beautiful word called the ascetity. The ascetity of God is that he is being and existence in itself. Ontology, he is ascetic. Uh, 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 sorry, ascetic. He is, the ascetity of God is that he is the definition of being. All that we understand of existence, it originates there. He's the creator. It's supposed to be confusing. If you think it was just easy, I don't know, maybe dive a little deeper. Of course, I'm known to make simple things complex. <laughs> but it's because I say they are. I think Psalms 8, the writer of Psalms 8 says it really pretty well. Um, oh Lord, oh our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies to, uh, because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avengers, when I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which have been set in place by you, I ask, what is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him the ruler of the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet, all the flocks and the herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish and the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. He's getting on something there. What? Why is it that you care so much about us? Uh, the practical portion of this. Okay, that was big. That was big. Okay, practically, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I'm going to read um, Hosea 12. Verses 2 through 6. The Lord has an indictment against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother's heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for the Lord. A couple of things that are saying precedes Jesus, right? This is Old Testament. What's really intriguing here is that he's talking about Jacob, and then he says, there God spoke with us. He spoke to all of us through this story. And then he says, hold fast to love and justice and wait. Wait continually. Strove with us. We're continuing that. Continually Wait. We're connected to that Michelangelo. We're connected to that promise. That promise, and I'm not going to put it up here because I'm over time, but don't put it up. But Isaac says, or, 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 or Jacob says to his children, one of his child, children is Judah, who is the line of kings. Through Judah comes Jesus. And he makes this blessing. To Judah, he says in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter meaning leadership shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes. Tribute means until kingship is fully recognized. Okay, here's the curious thing. They did not fully remove the nation of Judah until Rome destroys Jerusalem utterly. And that's after Jesus. That's 70 years after Jesus. The scepter shall not depart until tribute comes. Tribute comes, and Judah's removed. That's meaningful to us. We'll say it's pointing to us, and he'll say the Holy Spirit is pointing to us through Hosea, saying, I spoke to you. Wait. Because this typological believer is us. It's the church. We're grafted in. We inherit this story. So beautiful. It doesn't stop, right? It walks right into the New Testament, almost not skipping a beat. It, again, brilliant piece of literature. Brilliant piece of literature. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. How many authors? Over how many thousands of years, so tied together, so beautifully, so meaningful. That promise of God develops and blossoms through this, this story for all, for all, for everybody. That promised land becomes the kingdom of God, which is Jesus, which is being with Jesus. There's another beautiful quote from Alfred Edersheim, a guy I study um, 
to learn more about the, the history of, the cultural history of, of Israel during the time of the New Testament, he writes this. He says, the kingdom means the rule of God, which manifested in and through Jesus Christ. It is apparent in the church. It gradually develops amidst, amidst, amidst hindrances. It is triumphant at the second coming of Christ. And finally, it is perfected in the new world to come. That's the kingdom. That's the completion of the promise. Wait. We're supposed to wait all the way back from the Old Testament. We get that message. You're the believer. You're the Jacob. You're the Israel. You're the believer. You're the one struggling now in this human struggle. The story is about us. It's about every human. It's about the history. It's about the patriarch. It's about, it's about belief. It's about our relationship with God. <clears throat> in every event that we have, Jesus is present. That's what that wrestling is telling me. What am I wrestling with? There's a deity close by. God is present. Jesus is present. Some events are straightforward like that. Some events are not. There's a mystery in the relationship that I have with him. Most significant, um, there's, most significant events in my life have been very paradoxical. And, and, and it's okay. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to wrestle with God. Sometimes you're like, whoa, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. We just went through the study of praying through the, uh, the Psalms. And how do we pray through lamenting and angry and frustrated and sad? Cry out to God. Be angry and sad. Curse your condition. Sometimes it sucks. Sometimes being human sucks. Sometimes what we have to go through is hard. And God wants you to reach out to him and wrestle with him about it. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why did you set a table for me? I come to you, God, and you set a table amongst my enemies. Everybody, any look at that psalm and go, why did you set my table amongst my enemies? That's a little weird and frustrating and kind of ticks me off, God. It's okay. Get out of your comfort zone. Get in that, make that relationship with God real. I think that's what it's saying here. And do it with others. If you didn't catch the theme yet, it is, it's an individual that has a belief and a relationship with God, but that individual is community. You can't separate those. Abraham, Jacob, Israel, it's community. And it all points back to the church and me. And you. It's very individual. It's very communal. We've got to do it with others. That's the typology that's here. God's Trinitarian. God is in relationship. He's in perfect relationship with himself. And he reaches out, enters into our creation, manifests himself as Jesus, the peace of the Trinity, and calls us into that relationship in a very intimate and personal way. It was very, very powerful. That's our renaming. That is our renaming. When we get into the relationship with Jesus, we're renamed. I'll end with that idea of baptism that Donnie had finished with. That's that idea of baptism we're being renamed. We're no longer Jacob, schemers, weaselly, stealing our joy, stealing our meaning, stealing our purpose, trying to manufacture it. No, no longer are we Jacob or Israel. We've wrestled with God. We will continue to struggle with God, but we are renamed as forever and ever and ever to be with God. It's okay to wrestle with God. Let's close that in prayer. I just thank you, Lord, for the patience of everybody. Here, I just pray again that you do something with all those words 
that you spark a love for your scripture in the hearts of everybody here such that they dive into it deeper and deeper and deeper and get into a deeper and deeper relationship with you and that be communal, that we could do that together and that we could do that in such a way that you, Holy Spirit, works through us as individuals, through us as a community and spread beyond these walls into the neighborhood, into our families, into the city, into the nation, that our eyes are always and always kept on your promised glory, the Holy Land, your kingdom. May your kingdom be on earth with us, through us, Jesus, and always be focused on the final glory of your return. In your name, Jesus, amen.